All right, welcome to Affect Autism, and this week we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ira Glavinsky in West Bloomfield, Michigan, where he has a practice that is based on the DIR model, and Dr. Glavinsky is a psychologist, and he's also an expert training leader for DIR floor time, and he also coordinates the Fielding University PhD program in which um, people take their doctorate and do research in infant and mental health largely around the DIR model, and Dr. Glavinsky can um, elaborate on that introduction in case any of it was a little bit off. Welcome, Dr. Glavinsky. Thank you, Daria. Just... um... I'm a co-lead in the fielding program. We have three three of us who share that load. I was initially um, a co-leader with another person, um, but the, the program has really blossomed. So we, we have another person and we share the load. Great. Um, actually, well, even though we weren't going to focus on this for the podcast, would you say a word or two about this Fielding University program? Yeah, the the Fielding program actually was, um, before it was called the Fielding program, it was the ICDL um, doctoral program. The program was started by Stanley Greenspan in 2007. Um, a number of people collaborated to get the program going. And initially... It was a freestanding program, which meant that it wasn't affiliated with any university, uh, and we were much too small to really get accreditation from any um, university accrediting organization. Um, the The model of the program is, is exactly what... Um, goes along with DIR. It was really Stanley Greenspan's model that um, became the DIR model. Um, He was the founder. Um, As our students moved into the dissertation track, we really wanted our students to graduate from an accredited university. So we began to go out on a shopping spree um, to look for universities that, that seem to have similar kinds of philosophies, frameworks. And in 2014, we merged with um, Fielding University. And, and the program is really, right now, it's the only doctoral program in the world that um, awards a, a degree in infant and early childhood development that emphasizes mental health and developmental disabilities. Um, the, the program, again, um, is comprised of uh, professionals from different disciplines. A number of the people on the faculty are really um, people who originally worked with Dr. Greenspan um, in the ICTL organization. Great. And ICTL is Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, which was right. an organization started with Dr. Greenspan. Well, and it is started with Dr. Greenspan, um, Dr. Serena Weeder, 
Mm-hmm. And then a number of other people um, who were either in the background or the foreground who helped organize it. Right. And it is currently the home of DIR Floor Time. They offer DIR Floor Time training to professionals. And um, that's great. And what I wanted to focus on today was a bit about DIR in general. And the last few posts on the blog have really been more of an introduction to the overall concept of DIR and the philosophy um, to the approach and to the intervention um, that is floor time. And so I thought you would be a great person to ask about this because you have recently posted some nice blogs, um, some nice videos on your Facebook site about specifically about a problem that's been happening that you've seen with your clients and that you've heard teachers talk about in schools and, and parents that children are really overreactive and parents are having a hard time controlling behavior, teachers are seeing behavioral outbursts, and you really come at the issue with a remedy that is very different than a lot of mainstream solutions out there, which are very behaviorally based. And it speaks to what the DIR model really is all about, a developmental approach, which looks at the child's development as opposed to specific behaviors. So I guess, I don't know which way is the best way to go at it. Do you want to talk about some of the issues that you mentioned in your Facebook post and how the model works at it? Or would you like to start with a general overview of the approach and its uniqueness and differences? Um, What I'll do, I think, is I I will just sort of free associate to, you know, to your comments. Um, The the model is is really um, an individual difference-based model. And and one of the things that um, we we don't pay enough attention to is the fact that that kids come into the world with, with a biology um, they come into um, the the world with different thresholds for sensory input, um, emotional input, uh, and what happens is, um, I think the way parents um, parents experiences and teachers, educators experiences are looking at what's in front of you. And, and what's in front of all of us is the behavior of the other person. And what, what I have found, you know, really in my experience is I tend to work with children who um, have real severe emotion dysregulation. That, that's my background. And um, the, the severe emotion dysregulation is really physiologically based. So what I think is that when we look at the behavior in front of us and we make corrections, we make interventions, what we're really doing is we're, I think, dealing with splinters so that if one behavior is dealt with, 
one behavior is dealt with and something else is going to pop up and something else is going to pop up. And, and the question is, where does it come from? And where the neuroscience is taking us and, and the physiological research is taking us is it really starts with our bodies. And it really starts with our biological sensitivities, our biological reactivities, um, things as subtle as the size of different structures in the brain that are related to emotionality and the circuits that tie in <clears throat> lower brain functioning, um, emotional system with upper brain functioning cognition. And when you begin to work with children on the level of where it's coming from, the underpinnings of the behavior, what you're not dealing with is you're not dealing with splinters, you're dealing with the foundation of what's causing these behaviors. And like I said um, in, in the first video, um, when you see a child who is acting out all over the place, what you're really seeing is a heart rate that's increasing, you're seeing blood pressure increasing, you're seeing a child's breathing become much more shallow, and you're seeing changes in the physiological system. So what do you do about it? Um, you can try to deal with the behaviors, um, but typically these behaviors activate adults. And so the child's activation meets the parent's activation or the teacher's activation, and you have you know, a dance that's not a very pleasant dance for, um, for anybody. Or what you can do is you can begin to work on calming the physiology. When, when the physiology is activated, um, the control system in the brain is working less efficiently. By working on the physiology and calming the system, what you're doing is you're opening the window for that control center in the front part of the brain to do its job. And so what, what the model does really is um, it focuses on those individual differences at the level <clears throat> that the child is functioning so that what you're not doing is working over where the child is capable of responding. Um, and the, the entire foundation is the relationship between the two people who are working in the moment. What a lot of research shows at this point in time is that there are, you know, there, there are countless interventions that are being developed and um, introduced every day. But really the... Um, the linchpin, if you want to call it, um, of any of these interventions are the two people who are working together. And that relationship is really one of the foundations of this DIR model. 
Right. And I think, um, you know, it, I have a couple of different comments. One thing I heard on the news yesterday in Toronto um, was that there's been an inquest into some police shootings here of mentally ill people. And, um, and the person died. So they've been interviewing, um, they were interviewing someone who works at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is a, a big mental health facility in Toronto. And the woman might as well have been saying what you were saying, because she said, what we see is that the police aren't trained in the way to deal with mental health and what they see is all they can see is the behavior that's in front of them. So this man happened to pick up a big fence post, a metal fence post, and it's a threatening object coming at you. And you immediately go into defense mode and you bring that stress level up, which only stresses the stressed person out even more. And she was suggesting that they be trained in de-escalation which we would call co-regulation, which is what you were just talking about in the DIR model, which in case uh, we haven't said yet is developmental individual differences relationship-based model. And she said, instead, the police might say, is there anything I can do? How can I help you? And just right away, putting that um, threat down can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was so interesting um, that this was being talked about on the mainstream and this is what, you know, teachers and parents can do with children every day. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in a stress um, occupation, whether it's law enforcement or these days education, people go into a situation with their systems activated you know, one, one of the things that you see is, is you know, sort of the readiness for um, some sort of negative event often. So you move into the situation with high reactivity to begin with, and that part of your brain, the amygdala, um, reacts um, milliseconds before the cortical system. So what happens is the if you don't have control over the system, um, these situations activate you, and because there's no time for thought, it's translated into action immediately, and that's where we run into trouble. We we don't or are unable to give ourselves the opportunity to let that sensory input move from that emotional system out to emotional system up to the cognitive system so that I can say, ooh, we have a problem here. What can I do to help you? Right. And with parents, they sometimes get themselves in a pickle because you want to hurl threats at your child. If you don't stop that right now, I'm going to do this or you can't do this and then the child might not be able to control the behavior so then you have to escalate the threat escalate the threat and it becomes this you know you get yourself into quite a pickle (laughs) exactly exactly yeah yeah um you know it's, it's taking away one thing after another until there's nothing left um and you're left with an angry misunderstood child 
And um, that's a huge problem. That's just a very huge problem. And unfortunately, a lot of the times, the child isn't necessarily being malicious or defiant. They're just being children who are developmentally at a stage where they might not be able to control um, certain impulses, and the parents might be punishing that unknowingly. Yeah, and that has to be underlined in red, put in italics, and really um, go out there. Because I, I, I think one of the things that lots of adults have difficulty um, seeing or understanding is that adults and children don't live on the same planet. Um, <laughs> the adult world is very different than the child world. And um, we, we really, and again, this, this is part of the DIR model, um, we really have to get into the child's world and um, follow that child's lead. One of the things, Daria, that I, I do with all of my parents um, where I'm going to work on the model, this is, I, I tend to work with the young kids because I'm really fascinated by the emergence of mood instability and mood disorders in kids. So um, what I will say to the parent is, um, this is the deal. You've been commissioned by NASA, and you are going to Planet Jimmy. You know, I'll, I'll use the child's name. And we have a major, major problem. The major problem is that the creatures on Planet Jimmy have never seen an Earthling. <laughs> no matter what you do, they're not going to understand it because they're not going to be able to, they don't have the template to, you know, to understand it. So what you're going to have to do is you have to observe for a little while, and you're going to have to enter that child's world, or that creature's world in this case. And so what happens pretty much 100% of the time, is after the first 10 seconds or so, I'll go, whoops, that's an earthling thing. <laughs> and parent will just look up and they'll go back to playing. And about five seconds, later, whoops, that's an earthling thing. <laughs> and, and about after the fourth or fifth time that I say that they're doing an earthling thing, either they're going to pick themselves up and take themselves out of the office thinking that I'm, you know, this crazy person who they're working with and they don't understand, or what they will do is they will say, so what do I do? And my response is, I can't tell you what to do, but you can't be an earthling. And something will happen um, all the time. And it can be something like a hand, the child's hand pounding on the floor or something like that. And the parent will imitate it. And the child will look at the parent. And the parent will do it again. And the child will imitate it. And usually with some sort of vocalization to go along with it. And the parrot will imitate the vocalization, and then they're into the interaction. 
So what, what the parent has to do or, or the teacher has to do is really redefine their understanding of play because their understanding of play is do you want to play with the soldiers? Do you want to play with the blocks? That's not play. What play is to a child can be anything. They can, you know, like I said, just knock on a table. They can, um, you know, sprawl themselves out on the floor. And, and that's the play. That's the engagement. That's the relationship. I, I had a father who um, had a child on the autism spectrum, and he came into the office and he said, I don't know what to do. I've, you know, gone through my bag of tricks and I am totally lost. What do I do? And my response was, I don't know what we do. Let's, let's take a look. And the child at that point um, got up on a chair that was, you know, that was in the office. And I said, there it is. There's the game. And the father looked at me and said, what are you talking about? I said, this is the chair game. And for the next 45 minutes, it was a full session, this father and this child engaged in a chair game under the chair, over the chair, standing on the chair, moving the chair. And um, they, they just were entrained with each other. And, you know, the father said to me, um, I would have never thought that a chair could be, you know, the tool for an interaction for 45 minutes. <laughs> Look at how many different things we did with this chair. And my response was that it wasn't only the chair. The chair was the vehicle for your interaction with your child. It was the engagement that was the important piece. Yeah, um, the, the children always want to engage in play, even if they can't show it. And it's our responsibility to find out how to get into that world they're in and get that um, interaction out by being playful. Um, it's like, you know, how parents say the children will play with the big box that the toy came in more than they play with the expensive toy. It's a perfect exactly. example what you just gave with the chair. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you know, as we develop, as we grow up, um, we get pulled into rules and regulations. So play is defined in a different way. And you really have to change. <laughs> Sorry, I was just turning off my stove. <laughs> or my oven. Um, yeah, no, that's great. And I think that that's the hurdle that a lot of parents who get a new diagnosis if their child is on the spectrum um, have a hard time understanding that they can make the most difference. They're told to get right into therapy as soon as possible. What can I do to help my child? What can I do to cure my child? What can I do to make sure they're, they're going to function in society? And there is no direct answer for that. Um, there is no cure. There is no one-fits-all uh, solution. It really is about promoting the natural development of the child and bringing out that child's <laughs> highest potential 
And you can't do that unless you get to know the child. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and there are a couple of other pieces to this. Um, one piece of it, and again, it gets back to the model, is what, what Dr. Greenspan was interested in doing was melding models. His initial work was in um, taking a look at um, learning theory, behavioral theory, and meshing it with psychoanalytic theory. Um, then he went on to um, link Piaget's cognitive theory with, with psychoanalytic theory. And, and his idea about merging led to looking at children in a holistic way. So one of the things that DIR does is it looks like it looks at the child as a whole system and you're dealing with all parts of the system if you just focus on behavior you're focusing on you know one one part of the system and it can be valuable it can be very valuable but it doesn't address the entire child um, another thing is that um, what we get into like you say are getting a diagnosis and um, one of the things that I, I think about, and I, and I think we're moving in this direction, is that categorical diagnoses put people in boxes. And two people or 10 people can get the same diagnosis and have 10 different behavior patterns. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we cluster people into a box, into a category, give it a name, and then present it to the parents. And parents don't have a clue. All they have is this label versus the idea of when we evaluate children, um, we're really evaluating strengths and weaknesses. And it doesn't matter what the label is, you know, necessarily as much as what do we need to address? And what are this child's strengths that we can use to bolster the weaknesses, and how do we work on what the child, you know, needs help with in terms of weaknesses? And let's look at the family system. Let's look at that relationship together. And um, we're, we're going through a, a paradigm shift in, um, in training because um, what, what people, you know, are, are, are saying is that the training is really like the five blind men or six blind men and the elephant. You know, you touch a part of the elephant and you, you get a picture of what you think the whole should look like, and it doesn't look like that at all. And so what we need to do in training is we need to um, meld all of these disciplines and train professionals to be able to look at the big picture rather than, you know, something that I call a splinter. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talk about, I was wondering if you could give an example of what you talked about in terms of looking at the whole child, finding their strengths and using those strengths to bring up their weaknesses. Can you give an example of, of what you mean by that for the parents listening? Um... Let's see. I, I think that um, you can have a child 
um, who has a real strength in you know motor planning, motor output, fine motor, um, gross motor, and is weak in language expression. And so, boy, I know that this kid loves to move around and get engaged in um, physical activities. And as we engage in those physical activities, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put sounds and words along with it so that when the child does something, I'm going to give a voice to that something so the child can imitate my language. Now we're combining motor with language. But along with that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a little dramatic with my emotions. And so now we're pairing motor functioning with language functioning with emotionality. And, and you can just you know, expand, that's, that's like throwing a rock in a pond and watching the ripples go out further and further and further. You can do the same thing in intervention. Right, and by making the experience emotionally pleasurable for the child around the activity that the child enjoys, they're going to be more likely to learn and remember and use that language again in the future. But, <laughs> there's a but there. And, and the but is that what you can also do is you can utilize negative experiences in the same way um, to expand the child. So an, an example of that is I have a little boy who loves to play with trains. And so he gets the train on the track and the train is going around the track and somehow, I don't know how it happens, but somehow my elbow gets stuck on the track. <laughs> and now this child is a little irritated with me and begins to push my arm or something. And what I'm doing is I'm playing, I don't know what's going on. And so what you're going to do or what I'm doing in that situation is I'm presenting an obstruction and that child is presenting irritation and annoyance. And I'm thinking about what I don't want to do is I don't want to precipitate a tantrum. So I'm thinking about the child's threshold, but I'm playing like, I don't know. And at some point the child will do something or might say off, off, you know, and I'll go, oh, you wanted me to take my elbow off the track. And child, oh, not, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I take my elbow off the track, and somehow my ankle on my other foot ends up on the track. <laughs> and so we can have these little negative interactions that are really productive and learning experiences without the child getting out of control. It can be very playful. Right. Um, and at first, I thought you were going to go somewhere else. <laughs> and I actually want to ask you about that somewhere else, because that's something that happens with our son, which is um, an emotionally charged fun. Um, I don't want to say it's negative. In the 
earthling adult world, it might be negative, but in the child world, it's playful and fun, is that, um, you know, our son might do some kind of fun thing where the trains all crash and fall or maybe hit somebody on the head and they say, ow, and that emotional response was so exciting that I want to do it again and again. And that's not really appropriate. So how do we sort of tame that? No, I, I, that's a great point. I, I think you have to be creative. And I, I think you really have to um, allow yourself, um, I, it's, it's hard to say, it's allowing yourself a kind of freedom where what you do is you make a subtle shift. So it might be um, that, oh, that child throws the car at me. And what I might do is, and this is just thinking in the, in the moment, is I might get a little bin and I might put the bin down and I'll pick up a car and I'll throw it in the box. And now what we've done is we've shifted away from that kind of excitement into, you know, something else playfully. But it, it's really, um, you know, the, 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 the deal is if a child throws a car at an adult, the impulse is to say, no, stop. Yes. <laughs> um, rather than, oh, the child just threw a car at me. I wonder what that means. And um, I have to think of something to keep the child engaged but shift the child away. He doesn't have it out for me. He's not throwing it at me in a negative way, like you say. So um, let me see if I can understand that behavior and channel it into something else. And I'm pretty sure that's the hardest challenge for parents. Um, our son is going through a phase right now where it's super fun to hit or kick just for fun to see, to get that ow reaction out of friends and out of parents and also coming up and licking, <laughs> lick my arm, licking my cheek, licking this and just saying, ew, gross and laughing and thinking it's so fun. And he's so playful and innocent and so cute. But at the same time, he's doing this over and over and over and he can't get enough. And I know in Engaging Autism, the book by Dr. Greenspan and Weeder, mm -hmm. they say, you know, giving a lot of floor time sessions a day, getting that child to get a lot of emotional feedback in a constructive way so they're not seeking it out in these ways. But even if you are, I mean, that's kind of a, that is a good solution, but it might not always be practical when the child is continuing to do this over and over again. He's clearly getting some kind of emotional need fulfilled by getting that reaction out of us and out of his friends. Yeah, you know, what that does, Gary, is, is it, it speaks back to the emotional reactivity. So when the child does it, you know, and, and laughs and the parent does something and the child laughs harder, what you're getting is a child over the threshold. So then at, at that point, what I'm thinking is not the activity. I'm thinking this child is dysregulating 
and my job is to help this child calm down. So my focus is not going to be specifically on this throwing car interaction. It's going to be, what can I do to help this child to calm down? And I may have to, you know, take the child out of the situation. I may have to put my arm on the child's back and start rubbing the child's back. But that's the co-regulation that you were talking about. For the child to be silly and activated and throwing cars means that I have to be really low-keyed to bring that child down. Without saying... Calm down, calm down. <laughs> I, had, I tell the story all the time, and I don't remember if I told it on the video. I had this little six-year-old boy, and he came in distressed, really distressed in the office, and he says, Dr. G, I come home, and my mom says, calm down. Will you calm down? You have to calm down. And then my daddy comes home from work, and he says, would you calm down? You have to calm down. <laughs> What's calm mean? <laughs> yeah. So, so unless you have the visceral, the body experience of calm, you can talk to a child about calming down till you're blue in the face, and the child's not going to know what it is. So that really speaks to the need for early therapies to begin to work on the body, to begin to work on sensations, to put the sensations together to give feeling names to begin to do things that get the child to focus on his or her body and where the distress is. And it's much more primary than a verbal interaction that may be going zoom over the child's head. And that's where a good occupational therapist comes in so handy to see all of the the pieces there. Um, Just a couple of things about that. Um, I noticed that you know, it's so clear that the child is not yet developmentally in a place to control their behavior when they do things like our son does. You can hear that, you know, he's been told, we don't hit friends, we don't kick friends or whatever. And as he's doing the hitting or kicking, he's saying out loud, we don't kick friends, we don't. (laughs) So he's repeating the script that he hears, we don't lick, we don't you know, and he's saying it, but he's still doing it and he's still motivated to do it and he's not able to control exactly. not doing. <laughs> yeah, and, and and what it's like, you know, one of the, the expressions that I use with parents is it's like trying to stop the water flowing over Niagara Falls with a branch. <laughs> you know, that, that what's happening is the, the emotional system is so activated that you know the child can repeat those words don't do this don't do that but the emotional system is overriding it and the child can't stop himself or herself from doing it in that moment it's just not possible right and using water is a good example um it's summertime we're at splash pads our son can't get enough of running through the water but he always wants to go up and splash all the strangers. And oftentimes there are very little toddlers that he towers over because he's now eight. Mm. And, you know, I feel like, oh man, here I am saying, 
oh, sweetie, uh, 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 don't do that, oh, sweetie, and, and then he keeps running, we don't splash kids, we don't splash kids, and, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to get in there and entice him in some other game in order to stop it, but it's so exhausting. <laughs> it well, can yeah, be... it's, it's, yeah, I mean, that, that part of it is, is so critical that it, it's exhausting, but, you know, what I wonder there is is about two things. One is that as parents or teachers, we tend to catch the signals at a high level rather than the subtle signals. So that if we begin to pay attention to the subtle signals, we can catch it before it becomes activated. The, the other thing is, you know, the, the need in, in some situations to remove the child from the activity but without the punishment aspect, because lots of times what will happen is when the kids are, you know, exhibiting the out of control or inappropriate behavior, the adult um, moves in with, you know, something negative, punitive, um, maybe not wanting to do it that way, but it's, it's, it's acted out that way. Um, versus, yeah, I, I have to take the child out of the situation. This isn't a healthy situation, but my child can't help it. So I'm not going to punish my child. I'm just going to take my child out of the situation and help my child to calm down. So as opposed to saying, we said don't splash kids, you splashed kids, we have to go now. I might say, and I, I did this the other day, I want to come back, I want to come back. I said, oh, but sweetie, Dada's home, he's waiting for us, we're late for dinner. So make it about the dinner instead. And he still said, I want to come back. I said, okay, well, we'll come back, we'll come back again, maybe tomorrow. So just making it not about what he was doing and punishing him or making him feel yeah. shame for something that he can't control. Exactly. Yeah. You, you know, the child is giving the signal, this can't work. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up the signal and help the child and support the child, you know, and scaffold the child, but I don't have to punish the child for something that he or she just can't control in the moment. Right, right. <laughs> um, this brings me to a controversial topic that you may or may not um, have a strong opinion about. But you've talked a lot today about physiology and, and emotionality that's ruled by biological systems in the child. And some people might be thinking, well, if it's a body problem, then there can be drugs to solve that problem. And if my child is upregulated so much all the time, maybe I can get a drug to calm my child down. And I know there are many, many opinions on all sides of that. And I was just curious what the DIR take on that would be. It's, well, it's, it's probably as controversial in DIR as any place else. Um, what I, I think in a lot of situations, well, there, there are two situations that I think about. One is where a child is unable to stop themselves from putting themselves in dangerous situations. And with kids that, that I see with severe mood disorders, and I had gotten into this discussion with Dr. Greenspan um, a number of years ago, when you're dealing with something that is so unsafe 
that there really isn't time to explore. Um, medication can be really necessary and helpful and if it's done the right way. But, but the second thing that, that I was going to say is with, with so many of the families that I see, they, they really haven't had the therapeutic experience um, to sort of explore. And, and so what I, I would want to do is I would want to get to know this family, get to know the child, spend time with the child, and you know, certainly try lots of other things before moving into medication. One, one of the things there that I talk to parents about um, is, and, and this information comes from my work in a bipolar network. I see a lot of kids who have been referred for possible bipolar disorder. So you, you, again, you see so you're dealing with a lethal, you know, lethal kind of disorder. And what I, I have to say to parents is, you know, medication may be um, a pearl of a recommendation, but the younger the child, to lower the probability of the medication helping. Medication helps young children probably about 40% of the time from what the statistics show. So regardless of what we do, we have to come up with interventions um, recognizing that medication may not work anyway. So it's not just that we're going to give the child medication and that's going to solve everything. Um, it may work. It may not work. It may work a little. We have to do a lot of work in coming up with interventions that, um, in addition to medication interventions, I think. And support the child's body and their needs, uh, their sensory needs. If it's a child who needs to move around a lot and they're on medication and just sitting on an iPad all day, well, they're still going to have that need in their body to move around a lot. Yeah, but, but that's an excellent, you know, that, that, that's an excellent point that, you know, when you think about individual differences, there are kids that need movement. And, and so these are kids who need to move around the room. And what I think is necessary is to train, you know, professionals to use those kinds of behaviors rather than put the brakes on them. So I had a, a boy who um, was driving everybody nuts with, with his activity in the classroom, and the principal was re really reluctant to go along with this. And I knew that this kid was not a runner, so he wasn't going to run out of the school. And I was able to talk to the principal about allowing this child to leave the room when he began to feel that feeling and he would run to the gym by himself and he would run laps in the gym and then he would come back to the room and he would sit down and he would be fine. <laughs> and we didn't have to call the school psychologist and he didn't have to be sent home from school, you know, for bad behavior. It was, here's a child who needs movement. We know that the child 
is going to be safe because it's not a risky child. It's a movement child. Let's find the place where this child can move and be safe. Never had one incident where people would have to go after him. He just went back to the room, he sat down, and he did his work. And that's probably part of the scary part is that the teachers don't know that in advance, so they're scared to give that freedom, and also they're worried about other kids wanting to have the same privilege. And <laughs> it becomes... I would do it to him if, if the, the other kids are going to ask to do it. Well, all of us need to be treated based on who we are and our needs. Um, just because one child has this you know, strategy, it doesn't mean we're going to give the strategy to everybody else. I rem- that's, the way, that's the way it is, yeah. Right. Um, I remember, you know, in the 70s being in grade three or something, and a little girl in my class had diabetes, and she was allowed to get up and go to the fountain to drink water whenever she wanted. And she would just go, and then she'd come back, and maybe sometimes mm-hmm. she did it for fun, and maybe sometimes she did it because she needed it, but it was understood that that was her special need that she had to have, and it was fine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I thought it would be nice maybe to go over an example or a little bit more in depth about what we mean with co-regulation, because I think that is a big struggle for parents, um, mm-hmm. this co-regulation piece, if their child is doing something that they don't want their child to do that is inappropriate Um, acting out, having a tantrum, whatever it is. Um, Can you go through some of the steps? Yeah, well, I don't know if I can go through all the steps, but the first thing I think is the principle of this is a we, not a him or a her and his or her behavior. This is a we, and we are a system. And in this system... We each affect each other. And, you know, it's the same as any other, you know, moving system. We're in it together. Um, Something that I do is going to affect you, and you're going to respond to it, um, and it's going to affect me, and I'm going to respond to it, and it's going to affect you. And um, one of the analogies that I use to... Um, really help parents with the co-regulation piece is to talk about playing ping pong. So um, number one, in order to play the ping pong, you're on one side of the table and I'm on the other side of the table and we're a system. And when I serve the ball, um, I don't have a clue what you're going to do with it, but I can't do anything. I have to wait for your response. You can hit it hard, you can hit it soft, you you can slice it, you can do anything. But you're going to bring it back to me, the ball's gonna be on my side, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something to get it to your side. If this ping pong game is too fast, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna use strategies to slow it down. So what I want to do is I want to have a communication, an interaction, um, where there's a, an in-sync, contingent, back-and-forth interaction 
that is at a level that's comfortable for both of us. You're not excited, I'm not excited. I'm not feeling like I want to take a nap. You're not feeling like you want to take a nap. And, and so what I'm doing is I'm monitoring you and you're monitoring me and we're realizing that everything that you do affects me and everything I do affects you. And so that's the co-regulated. We want to have a smooth interaction rather than a racing interaction or boring interaction. And the only way that I can do that is by monitoring you and you monitoring me. So I think that that's, I hope that's helpful in co-regulation. That's very, very helpful. Thank you. Um, other people describe it as a dance, and it's very similar to what you were just describing, and you mentioned um, a dance earlier as well in, in talking about it. Um, one last question. What do you do with a family where one parent is totally on board with this approach and the other parent won't give up the behavioral approach yeah. and insists on, I need to teach him a lesson, I need to make him learn yeah, yeah, well, what I what I tend to do in my practice when I see that is I may have an idea about the intervention, but I have to take a step back and I would want to have more time with that parent to explore where that person got the idea from. Um, I, I had one, um, it wasn't a pleasant situation, but it was a situation very much like you're talking about where a father, when the child used curse words, would wash the child's mouth out with soap. And he, um, he was sure that this is the way to do it. And mother just really was, was against it, but she couldn't do anything about it. And I, I saw the father and the father talk to me about, I, I can't stand when my child says these words, and I'm going to wash his mouth out with soap. And, and I, I looked at the father, and I, and I said, I'm just curious, you know, where did you get the idea of, you know, washing your son's mouth out with soap rather than anything else? And he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, when I was a kid, and I said a bad word, my father washed my mouth out with soap. I never realized that I would do the same thing as my father. And so it was a, a brief kind of taking the time to explore with that parent rather than to have a preconceived way. I'm going to see your child every week and we'll figure this out. No, what I have to do is I have to change my approach and I have to figure out what's the resistance to you know, doing it a different way. And so there have been times where child therapies for me have become adult therapies. It just makes more sense to see the parent and work with the parent. Um, and I, I would do something like that. Great. Well, thank you for all of this rich information. Um, it's helpful. I'm sure it'll be very, very helpful, and um, we'll put the podcast up, and I'll put links to your Facebook post and, and summarize some of the um, great points that you made, 
and tips for parents and practitioners out there. And uh, thank you so much for being on Affect Autism, Dr. Glavinsky. Thank you so much for inviting me. This, this was just fun talking to you, Daria. You too. <laughs>